Watch, guys. And uh, if you see me stepping back too far, then just give me a shout. <laughs> so it's a bit like charades or uh, sign language, but what does this mean? I surrender. Whenever we watch those cowboy movies or police movies and someone drops their weapons and puts their hands up in the air, we know the universal language is being spoken and it is, I surrender. That's what I did when I was 14 years old. I, as it were, put my hands up and I said to God, I surrender. And the reason why I did that wasn't because I felt threatened. Normally, whenever someone puts their hands in the air like that, it's because someone is pointing a gun at them, and they put their hands up and say, I surrender. The reason why I surrendered to Jesus Christ was because I felt loved, not because I felt threatened. And I'd come to the point of realizing that without Jesus, my life was going to lack meaning and direction and purpose. And I had, this, I had this deep sense, even though so in my life on the surface, everything looked great. I had a loving family. I loved school. I was healthy. But I felt this deep sense of a lack of meaning and purpose to my life. And also with that then came a, a deep lack of security. You wouldn't have known it to look at me, but a deep lack of security. And I realized that unless I decided to put my hands up to Jesus and say, because you love me, I surrender, that that's the way my life was going to be. But I'm very, very glad to say that I discovered that by doing that, that Jesus tenderly, graciously, lovingly has forgiven me and has invited me into this love relationship with him and with the Father in which I then journey with him falteringly at times on my behalf, often on my behalf, and he brings me into this place of knowing why I have life, what it means to be loved and have hope for this life and also for the, for the life to come. And that's been the wonderful journey for me for the last 40 years. The Bible talks about this relationship with God always in terms of covenants. Now, we may not use the term covenant very often, and we may well think, is that not describing a relationship in terms of a covenant? Is that not a bit sort of dry or legal or boring? But actually, the Bible shows us that it's a wonderfully vital relationship, and it it helps to give structure to what is a deep and close and intimate relationship of love. If you ever doubt how important a covenant is for a relationship, the next time you go to a wedding, look at the two people who are looking at each other and who are entering into a covenant. Because whenever the the bride comes down, the groom's here waiting expectantly. There's just smiles, there's excitement, sometimes there's a lot of tears. And the couple look into each other's eyes, and the bride and groom hold hands. They, they make a covenantial vow to each other that through sickness and health, through, through riches and poverty, 
that for the rest of their earthly lives, they are entering into this covenantal relationship. And when they do that, and when they sign the register and maybe exchange rings, believe me, the covenant does not look in any way dry, legal, or boring. It actually looks to be the most deep and loving expression of love. And the reason why we have marriage the reason why the Bible talks of covenants is because for a relationship that is trusting and tender to thrive, there needs to be a framework around it. Now, we know in the case of marriage, the framework is till death us do part. This is a, a faithful relationship between the two of us. It's, it's not going to involve other men and women. This is going to be a a faithful relationship. And that is the, that's the, the covenant legal relationship that is being entered into. So, covenants actually help to, to give a place where a deep trusting and loving relationship can happen. The first way the Old Testament describes that relationship is in terms of a peace treaty. There, we've opened a slide, come up, and there's, there's three different ways that the Bible really expresses and describes a covenant. There's two in the Old Testament, a peace treaty and marriage, and the way the New Testament talks about it is in terms of a will. So, in terms of a peace treaty, the whole book of Deuteronomy is structured in the format of an ancient peace treaty. Now, we may not spot that, but if you read Hebrew and you were an ancient Hebrew, then you would understand it. We're hoping that in the months ahead or the years ahead or whatever, we're hoping a peace treaty will be formed between Palestine and Israel and between Russia and Ukraine. That's the only way out of this conflict is to get to a place where people are willing to say, enough killing. But there's going to have to be a peace treaty. There's going to have to be some type of deal about borders and people and prisoners and war crimes. There's going to have to be some type of treaty. In the ancient world, peace treaties were extremely important, and they were probably a bit more clear-cut than they are now. The ones today are much more complicated. But the ones in those days looked like this. A king and his army ruled in and decided to conquer a land and conquer people. And at some point, the people who were being conquered might well put their hands up and say, I surrender. Please stop killing us. And there were three aspects to every ancient peace treaty. First of all, there were the benefits for the people who had been conquered. Then there were the obligations of those people who were conquered. And then finally, there was the penalty clause if the people didn't live up to it. So the benefits of the people who were conquered was normally pretty clear-cut. You get to live. That's it. The king would say, the conquering king with his army probably all pretty much standing behind him would say, the benefit for you for signing this peace treaty is that you all get to live. The obligations on the people in this peace treaty probably can be formed, summed up pretty much in one word, taxation. They were going to have to produce wealth to give to the king in order for their lives to be saved. That's the basic peace, peace treaty, but it's pretty much what it looks like. 
The penalty clause is that if the people don't pay the taxes or if they revolt, then the army standing behind the king is going to come down like a ton of bricks. And all the peace treaties, including the book of Deuteronomy, are put out in that way. So, throughout the Old Testament, this is the relationship between God and His people. The difference is God is seeking to conquer the people with love and not with force. And so, the Lord says that He has come in order for the people to live and to thrive. And so, right from the very start of the Bible, for instance, whenever we come to the moment whenever God reveals Himself to a man called Abram, a nomad, and the first thing God does, isn't this amazing? The first thing God does in revealing Himself to someone who is willing to know Him is He says, here's the deal, here's the covenant. And the covenant was, God said to Abraham, I want you to trust me so much that I want you to leave your household and your people, and I want you to go to a, you to go to a land that I haven't yet shown you where it is. This is a massive step of faith, to leave your family and place of security and your pasture lands and your people and go to somewhere that was beyond your imagination among people who may not at all be friendly to you was a massive step of faith for Abram. And the Bible says, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So groundbreaking was Abram's trust for God that God said, you're a righteous man, Abraham, because you trust me that much that you're willing for your security to be in me and not in your land or your people or your father's household. And Genesis chapter 15 describes the, the peace treaty being signed in a covenant and all the covenants in the Bible involve sacrifice, they involve blood, they involve, involve promises, and they avoid, avoid sealing, and they, they, avoid, they involve sealing, and they also involve a sign. And so, the sign of the covenant with Abraham and his ancestors, his male ancestors, is the sign of circumcision. But the ritual that they go through is one of a peace treaty. And in Genesis chapter 15, there's this strange chapter, strange to our ears and our eyes, because it involves animals being sacrificed, their carcasses being put in halves, and God being symbolized by a fire pot coming through the pieces of the cut-up animals and walking towards Abram. Now, we don't necessarily recognize this, but whenever a people were conquered and their king was standing there with his army behind him, whenever he wanted to say, this is a peace treaty, this is what happened. Animals were sacrificed. They were cut in half. Their pieces were put side by side, and the conquering king would walk through the carcasses towards his people. And that's the way peace treaties were always carried out. And so the readers of Deuteronomy would, would have understood that. The second image in the Bible of the covenant is to do with marriage. You see, the, the penalty clause, the, the, the benefits for the people 
of Israel were that they would be blessed and they would be protected. And the penalty clause was if they didn't obey the Lord and worship Him alone, then the penalty clause would come into effect. And the penalty clause is seen in the exile of the people because God takes His protection off them after hundreds of years of pleading with them through the prophets. And they refuse to worship God. Instead, they worship idols they've made with their own hands. So after pleading with them for hundreds of years, God removes His protective hand and the people are taken into exile. They lose the land, they lose protection, they lose Jerusalem, and they're taken off to a foreign land called Babylon. And so the ancient covenant is put into action by God. He doesn't want to do it, but he has to live up to the promise that he's made with the people. Marriage then becomes increasingly in the Old Testament the picture of the covenant. And God says to the people, He says it early on in the Bible and even in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. It's like the language of marriage. And often the prophets spoke about the covenant in terms of marriage. The one who did it more than anybody was the prophet Hosea. And amazingly, because the people were being unfaithful and they were, the people were like the, the wife and God being the husband. And God said to Hosea, in order to illustrate what was happening in the nation, he said to Hosea, I want you to go and marry that adulterous, promiscuous woman called Gomer. Now, Gomer's reputation was wide and far. She was well known as a promiscuous woman. That was her reputation. And so Hosea goes and he asks Gomer to marry him. And Gomer marries him. After a while, it becomes clear Gomer is not going to live faithfully to Hosea. And she starts sleeping with lots of other men. And eventually she goes and lives with another man. And Hosea's heart is broken. And then God does something amazing. Hosea has come to the point where he just falls out of love with Gomer. And when he does, the Lord comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to pay the man who Gomer is living with and bring her back to be your wife again. And amazingly, Hosea says, okay. And he goes and he pays in silver and wine and barley, and he pays a small fortune to buy his wife back from this other man. Now, you and I may well wonder, was Hosea wise? But to ask that question is to ask the question, is God wise to love you and love me? Is God wise to love the people of Israel and the people of God? But what Hosea tells us is this. God loves us so much. He loved the people of Israel so much that he paid a massive amount in order for us to come back and to live with Him and be reunited with Him. 
And so that famous passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, where the Lord again expresses what He's going to do, but He starts speaking about this new covenant. Because here's the thing, the people of Israel and you and I are not able to live up to the obligations of the covenant. The whole Bible shows us that you and I cannot live to the, for the glory of God alone. Human beings just can't do it. Although, as we'll see, there was one man who could. Jeremiah says, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. He's speaking the words of God. This covenant will be not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. The pictures in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, are ones of a peace treaty and marriage, and those are bilateral agreements. There are two people who have to do certain things for the covenant to work. Here's the amazing thing about the New Covenant. It's unilateral. There's only one party that does anything, and it's God. Karl Barth, a well-known theologian, said this, in Christ, God has at last found the perfect covenant-keeping partner. So imagine this. You and I, every human being, cannot live fully human lives. We sink to something that is subhuman by our nature. We live as basic animals and not human beings who are, yes, creations, but made in the image of God. So what happened was that God the Father and God the Son effectively shook hands on a deal. Christ is the covenant-keeping partner of the new covenant, not you and not me, because we could never shake hands on the deal and live up to it. Christ is the one who has done everything that is necessary for us to be accepted and forgiven and received. And so the picture of the covenant in the New Testament is of the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And that by the death of Jesus Christ, we get to be inheritors of everything that heaven holds. See, the thing is, I don't know if you've ever been in a solicitor's office to hear the reading of a will. It's not something nor normally you want to happen. But the fact is, if you ever find yourself or have found yourself in that position, and the solicitor's looking across at you and saying, you know, you're a beneficiary of this will. Do you want to tell me, do want me to tell you all that you're going to receive? But what the solicitor doesn't ask you is this. 
are you able to receive this? Are you wise enough to receive this? Are you worthy to receive this? Those are not questions the solicitor will ask you because it's a unilateral deal. Basically, it's all yours. All you have to do is receive it. One of the things that I found most difficult when I was 14 was for for many months, I couldn't bring myself to call myself a Christian because I knew what my past and my present looked like. I was was not a good 14-year-old in a lot of ways. But when I came to this place of knowing that I was loved by my heavenly Father and that Jesus Christ had done everything necessary for me to be forgiven and to have a new life, I still couldn't bring myself to call myself a Christian because I thought, I'll malign in some way the name of Jesus. Until my youth leader brought me aside and said to me, Nigel, it's not about you. It's not about you. You call yourself a Christian, you get to call yourself a Christian, but it has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with what you have done, what you are doing, or what you will do. Christ has done it all for you. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I feel this draw of God the Father and God the Son to come into this wonderful community of faith, to have this intimate relationship in the midst of this covenantal relationship with God, but I just don't know if I can live up to it. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is the perfect covenant-keeping partner. Being a recipient of all the riches of heaven, as it says in that wonderful reading that Stella read for us, and it talks about all the blessings that, and Paul says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. All we have to do is receive. It's an inheritance. It's not performance related. We just receive. And baptism is a wonderful echoing and illustration and significance of the fact that being united with Christ means going down and our selfish self being drowned in the waters of baptism and being raised up by somebody else out of the water which is why we never baptize ourselves, because someone always has to pull us up again out of the water. And we only do it once because it signifies new birth. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. As a baptized follower of Christ, you have all the riches of heaven. Everything has been given to you. It's your birthright. All you have to do is receive. This morning, 
I said some words as I signed each of the candidates on the forehead with a sign of the cross. Christ claims you for his own. Receive the sign of the cross. Live as disciples of Christ. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Confess Christ crucified. Proclaim his resurrection. Look for his coming in glory. This morning, I just want to encourage you in every moment of your life not to let your own self condemn yourself. Not to let anyone else condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But when that whisper comes, say, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, I mess up all the time. And God knew that I would. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm received and accepted. And I'm a child of God. This morning after the service, both over here and over there, there'll be Stephen and myself after the service. If you would like to be signed again with the sign of the cross, just to be marked again, a moment for you to say, I just want to put a line in the sand to say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I have surrendered to him. All the riches of heaven are mine, not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ, because I am deeply loved in this covenantal love that God has for me. And boy, he is committed to me through sickness and health, through poverty and through riches. He will never leave me. I belong to him. Shall we stand together? So the moment we're going to sing, and even during this last song, Steve and I will be in place. If you want to come forward during the song or after, feel free to do that. But let's have a moment of surrender to the Lord. Lord, today I just want to say, and we want to pray this personal prayer, Lord, I just want to say thank you for loving me. Thank you for receiving me. Thank you for accepting me. Lord, I'm not worthy but you have made me worthy. And Lord, you knew within this covenant that I was going to mess up big time. That I have messed up, that I do mess up, and that I will mess up big time. And Lord, I just want to say thank you that you still love me. Thank you that you still accept me and you still receive me. And Lord, we want to say to that little voice that sometimes condemns us, get behind me, Satan. or if it's coming from our own imagination, our own thought processes, we want to say, get behind me. And Lord, may it be your voice, the voice of love and forgiveness and acceptance and reassurance. May that be the voice that we hear. And I just want to declare your love afresh over us today as the family of God. Lord, thank you that you love every single person here. Lord, you died for every single one of us. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit afresh today. And Lord, help us not to carry 
a burden of false guilt. But Lord, help us to quickly always say, I am sorry. And to live with lightness and freedom and joy all the days of our lives. And look forward to that day when we will see you, our Savior and Redeemer, face to face in the flesh. And we will know that our Redeemer lives, that we live, and that now we live in the joy and the hope of that reality and that truth. And so may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon us and remain with us always. Amen.